Let's just, um, let's just say a prayer now as we begin the session. Jesus, we want to thank you for the fun we've had today and for just being able to stand together. We want to bless you for Rob. We thank you for him, for all the amazing work he does, for the, for the man that he is before you. And we want to thank you that you've come to set us free from guilt because you died once and for all. You rose again. And yet, Lord, we all want to know what that means in our hearts and in our lives. So we're not walking around with an incredible burden that we don't need to carry anymore. So we pray that you'd equip us through this session and give us grace and help us be compassionate towards ourselves and each other. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Will. So, so guilt this is the happy one, isn't it? Um, there's a reason why we put the day together the way we did. So the idea is that um, we're all born wanting to be good boys and girls, aren't we? So perfection, perhaps, is where some of the struggles start. Um, when you get um, into difficulties with that, then you move on to worry, and that's what we were going to have. And then after that, you start stressing about it and perhaps start having panic attacks. And then once you've burnt up all your adrenaline, you're just left with this mess of guilt. So I hope you haven't been on that journey today, but if you have... This could be a difficult session, but I'm going to keep it fairly light with stories and, and stuff like that and see where, see where we go on this. Um, the, the next picture is just um, a picture of some of the artwork from the book. Now, all the books have sold out downstairs, but um, you can get some more from IVP. Or if you go to the Mind and Soul website, mindandsoul.info forward slash guilt, you will find talks like this one, seminars, slides, and, of course, you know, a link to buy the book. So please do have a look at that. And the artwork in the book, tremendously privileged, was done by Charlie Mackesy, who does the artwork for the Alpha books. And Charlie's cartoons in the book really sort of capture some of the um, things. And this, this is, you know, perhaps the idea of being free from guilt. We'd love to sort of end up at that point by the end of the day. However, the reality, and there's a cartoon on the next slide, the reality is that um, we often end up gripped in guilt. Now, I know you can't read this, but this, this is Calvin and Hobbes. And um, this, this cartoon was first um, given to me by my uh, mentor, who is an Episcopalian priest from Kansas. So I'm going to do it in that accent. Um, Mom, a big dog knocked me down and stole Hobbes. I tried to catch him, but I couldn't. Now I've gone and lost my best friend. Well, Calvin, if you wouldn't drag that tiger everywhere, things like this wouldn't happen. And, and this last one, it says, it says, there's no problem so awful that you can't make it worse by adding a healthy dose of guilt. And that's so true, isn't it? It's so true. Guilt is just the thing that sort of, okay, but now I'm really stuck, aren't I? A few quotes about guilt. Somebody once said that guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> okay, isn't it? You know, not just for Christmas, it's with you all year, isn't it? But there's also a different perspective, isn't there? So in the Bible, in, in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, it says godly guilt brings repentance. Yes, that's good, isn't it? And leads to salvation, amen. And leaves no regret, but false guilt brings death. So there we're beginning to get two types of guilt. What does that mean? If we're feeling guilty, what is it? True guilt, false guilt. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? And of course, the third quote, all of our sort of guilt do end up spilling over unfortunately Tony Campolo is meant to have said sadly we do a much better job of making people feel guilty than we do of delivering them of the guilt we create we need to confess this and change our ways sometimes for people with a solution looking for a problem I've got salvation I need to make you feel guilty so that my product 
works for you. And hopefully, our evangelism has moved on to that. But it was very much the sort of, you know, you are a sinner, etc., etc. And theologically, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not sure emotionally it was the best way to go about it. And for some people, it was really bad. And some people actually got saved but got stuck with the idea that they were still a guilty sinner and it's left them in a whole bunch of mess. And as a result of that, there are some assumptions on the next slide, five assumptions about guilt that Christians have. This is what we got from our our research. One of the assumptions, and these are all urban myths, of course, aren't they? One of the assumptions is all real Christians should feel free from the guilt of the past. You know, you become a Christian, all of a sudden, you have like, it's like having memory loss. Anything bad has gone. You don't think about it anymore. You don't think about the stuff that you did when you were away from God, backsliding in your teenage years. It's all gone, you know. I mean, this idea that somehow you have a sort of memory wipe. There's that great film, isn't there? I can't remember the name of the film, but um, this guy basically is selling memory wipes. And um, I can't remember the name of the film. What's, What's it called? Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yeah, Jim Carrey classic from the early years. Selling memory wipes, but it doesn't work. The film basically becomes distasteful and it doesn't work and he wants his memories back because we don't do well with memory wipes um the other thing that christians get wrong is this linking between feeling and fact feeling guilty means that you are guilty and it works doesn't it if you feel anxious you think you probably lost your keys (gasps) you know who fell for their keys just then and (laughs) that we make this link though between feeling and fact and then there's this thing that If you still feel guilty about a sin having confessed it, then that means that you don't trust Jesus enough, so you need to then confess for that sin. And what if you don't believe that sin, and then, you know, you you end up sort of, by the time you've finished, you've got a list of sins as long as your bed, and you haven't actually got over the first thing. So it's this ridiculous self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Again, maybe salesmen making a solution that their product works for. I am completely responsible when I'm guilty about something. If I feel that, um, you know, my kids had a bad day at school because I shouted at him in the morning, it's all my fault as a mum. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe he was naughty at school. Maybe someone poked him. Maybe the teacher was having a bad day. We we, we generalise our responsibility, don't we? And... um, also, this Christian thing, there's only one sort of guilt, it's all sin, and there's only one way to deal with it, and that's the cross. Well, we just heard from the Bible, that's not the case, but, you know, take it to God, take it to Jesus, you've been forgiven, why are you still feeling guilty? Uh, and it's this sort of all or nothing kind of approach. Not particularly helpful. So we thought it might be good to write a book on guilt, and one of the reasons for that is that on the next slide, this is a guy called Portunier, who's a psychotherapist um, from... 50 or so years ago in, in Switzerland, and the, the, the Tournier Foundation still does great work, but this is the most recent book that we could find on the whole topic of guilt and grace, and the whole sort of Christian psychological kind of inf- interface. Now, it's quite a dense book, it's written with quite a lot of psychotherapeutic language, but it's a great book, and um, we've researched a few ideas from it. Um, and one of the things it says is this, is it says guilt is a religious problem which interests theologians, a social problem which interests sociologists and a psychological problem which interests psychologists. And he says all of these things are interesting. You know, guilt, is, it's a symptom of depression, isn't it? it it's, it's something which sits at the interface of spirituality and mental health. But, but sometimes, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So the psychologists want to take CBT to it. Um, the, the vicars want to take the gospel to it. And actually, it's a really complex problem. Now, 
at the risk of disagreeing with Paul Tournier, who is one of the greats, I'm going to say he's wrong in what he says next. Because what he says next is he says guilt cannot be dissected. Actually, I think it can be dissected. We had an example just there in, in 2 Corinthians I read earlier. And there are, basically, we've talked about two types of guilt, just on the next slide there. There's true guilt. Now, if I just define true guilt for a second, this is present when most people, not you, most people would acknowledge you've done something wrong or were aware of something being done wrong and didn't respond. You know, that holiday of a sin of, of commission, a sin of omission. It's hence more objective in that most people would agree with it. The key answer to true guilt is the good news of the Christian gospel, forgiveness, restoration. False guilt, on the other hand, is when actually nothing's been done or nothing's been not done. And actually most people would think that's the case, but you think otherwise. I, the problem is not one, it's not a moral problem, it's a psychological problem, it's a, it's a misunderstanding Albeit. I mean, it's not a way you can think your way out of necessarily, but it's a psychological misunderstanding, and we need to try and think differently about it. We need to learn to respond differently to it. And the, the key approach here can have spiritual and pastoral aspects, but it's mainly about answering the lie that this is true guilt. And that's where we need to be focusing our energy. In the same way that Jonathan was talking about two types of worry, one that you go solve some problems about and you do something about it, the free-floating thing you don't worry about it, you do something else in, instead about being kind to yourself, about choosing not to, to follow that route all the way. So, so true guilt and false guilt. And if we just sort of test this out a little bit more, just the, just the next sort of slide there with the stethoscope on it, let's do some analysis here. True guilt gives you identity. It tells you that you are a son of God who's fallen and gone away and God is reaching out to you. It, it tells you something helpful about your situation from a spiritual point of view. I would suggest that false guilt does the opposite. It leads you away from knowing that you are God's son and daughter, doesn't it? It leads you away from God, that you're not worthy somehow of, of his attention, of his salvation. True guilt leads us towards God. It says, I think, in Galatians that the law was put in charge for a while to lead us to Christ. So one of the functions of the Old Testament law is to show true guilt, such that we do need a saviour. The yearly atonements were always a prequel to what was coming. It was there, not that grace may increase, but to, and it couldn't save by itself, but it, it pointed us towards a saviour. Whereas actually, false guilt leads us away from the saviour. I've done stuff really wrong. No, no one could forgive me. Those are the kind of things that come with false guilt, aren't they? True guilt focuses on the root issue, not about the sins, but the sin, the S-I-N, the middle letter, I. It's, it's a personal thing. It's that I am a sinner, if you like, or I was a, 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 a sinner, whereas true guilt focuses on the sins, the plurals, the this, the that, the thing we have done, the thing we haven't done, the, the bad stewardship, whatever you want to call it. The, it's detail. It distracts us. We start ruminating about it. We start worrying about it. True guilt leads to healthy remorse and healthy remorse is a wonderful thing because firstly hopefully you don't do it again and secondly it takes you through that to the joy of forgiveness isn't it whereas false guilt leads to rumination and worry true guilt is felt more keenly with spiritual maturity if you find a really 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 holy person and say to them do you ever struggle with guilt the answer would be oh yes awful all the time um, if you find someone who's not particularly holy and say to them do you struggle with guilt no me what <laughs> you know <laughs> I'm saved, aren't I? You know. But my point is, as you go through the Christian journey, you feel more guilty. 
if, 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 if because your God is shining more brightly on you, if that makes sense. And that, that's true guilt that you're aware of, whereas false guilt leads you in the opposite direction. Now, all of this suggests, wouldn't it be nice if we got rid of God? And this is a little picture of um, Kira Knightley in Pirates of the Caribbean doing her sort of swash kind of thing. I was very upset she never fell off the edge of the boat, but there we go. Um, so, so Kira Knightley said this. She's a, an atheist, a self-confessed atheist. She said, if only I was, wasn't an atheist, I could get away with anything. You just ask for forgiveness and you'd be forgiven. It sounds so much better than having to live with guilt. The reason I put that in is a lot of people think the opposite. A lot of people would think, I feel so guilty because, uh, you know, perhaps I was brought up in a convent is something I hear, or I went to a convent school or something like this, and I, you know, I grew up in that environment, and I, I just feel so guilty because of that religious upbringing. So if, if that hadn't happened, then I wouldn't struggle with guilt. But here's Kira Knightley saying that she struggles with guilt. And again, that reinforces the point. False guilt is not a spiritual thing. It's a sociological thing. Getting rid of the external morality of God doesn't change false guilt. All it means is that Hitler wasn't bad, because we don't have a definition of bad anymore. That, that, that's the only thing that happens when you get rid of God. That most people who don't believe struggle with guilt at various different times during their life. It's a psychological process. Even atheists feel guilty. So we've got something to learn from Kieran Knightley. But wouldn't it be nice then... If atheists feel guilty, wouldn't it be nice if Christians didn't feel guilty? And wouldn't it be nice if, if the church was a guilt-free environment? And there's a little sign, you know, on the next slide. If we had above the doors, you know, entering a guilt-free environment where no one ever feels guilty in church. Now, wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be nice? Now, of course, the reality is, as a Christian, you are meant to feel guilty from time to time for a little while because it's the Holy Spirit talking to you, convicting you of your sin, pointing you towards Jesus. But there's not meant to be ongoing guilt. And I wonder sometimes if our church cultures are built to encourage guilt in certain situations. So on my next slide, and I say this with caution, I'm going to have a go at every single denomination. Okay? So I am not poking fun at anybody because I could do this with any denomination, and I also actually like all of these denominations as well. Okay, so for example, top, top left, what you got? You've got some people with their hands raised in worship. What could it be? It could be a, a sort of Pentecostal church, which is very charismatic, very filled with the Spirit. And, you know, a, one of the sort of marks of going somewhere, if you like, is, is speaking in tongues. But what if you're the person who, who doesn't speak in tongues? And so rarely is it, I mean, it's, it's the gift of tongues, isn't it? That means that some people have the gift, some people don't have the gift. I mean, forgive me if I've sort of misunderstood a, a gift. It's, it's not a, a mandatory thing. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, you know, you haven't, you haven't learned to speak in tongues, so therefore you, you can't be a full member of the church, you can't be in leadership in the church, etc. And people feel incredibly guilty in that kind of situation. Now, there's great strength to that church as well, but top left. Now, this could be anything. It could be a high-income church, it could be a Catholic church. I have to get the phrase into this talk somewhere, no one does guilt like a Catholic, okay? Now, and in particular, no one does guilt like an ex-Catholic, okay? Now, I'm not having a go at Catholics. I've got a lot of time for the Catholic Church. However, that is something which quite often is, is, is what is heard or said, and there seems to be something in the way that, particularly in the people who leave the church, one of the reasons why they left is they say, I just felt very guilty in that situation, and I think great strength in the church, but maybe there's something in there 
in terms of the weaknesses. What about the sort of um, bottom left one, the little country church where, you know, you've got a village and on the edge of the village there's a church and, you know, there's 30 people go to the church every week and most of the village don't go. And then that person comes to church who we know is not of good standing in the village and has come to church. And I'm not actually sure that this is actually what is going through anyone's minds intentionally, but sometimes like, oh, what are they doing here? They're not the usual person who comes to this church. They haven't got the right kind of skirt, etc. So, so there are, <laughs> and again, don't get me wrong, the local church is the hope of the world. I'm not having a go at parish churches, but I am having a go at the kinds of churches where people who are new feel guilty. Okay, and then lastly, the tradition that I was brought up in, I've been in three of these traditions, actually, there we go, um, ecumenical. Um, the, the, the bottom right one there, you know, Bible study group leader, in, in some churches there's this idea that only certain people are allowed to handle the word of God. Now, sometimes that's a gender thing, sometimes that's believed to be a skill thing, a holiness thing, but the flip, and I, you know, I want good Bible teaching, I don't have a problem with that, but the flip side of that is what if you're someone who doesn't seem to be able to be allowed to lead Bible studies for whatever reason. Perhaps you've been depressed and people think you're not, not suitable. There's all the guilt and associated stuff that comes with that. So, now I've offended everybody. <laughs> Just reinforce again, these are fine-tuning, icing on the cakes within those denominations. I think important but things just to sort of add two things. Let's think a little bit about where this false guilt comes from. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say anything more about, about true guilt. I think true guilt, you know, Ari covered that this morning. It, it, it comes from the fall. It comes from our separation from God. The answer to that at a root level is reintegration with God. So Jesus paid the price for that. I'm not going to talk about the roots and shoots of true guilt. I am going to talk a little bit about the roots and shoots of false guilt because that helps us understand how we might go on about changing. And um, on the next slide is a quote by Sigmund Freud. Now, you can't do a conference without a quote by Siggy, can you? That's my sort of theory. So not actually that I'm a, a Freudian psychotherapist, but... Freud said this, he said, unexpressed emotions never die. They are buried alive and they will come forth in uglier ways at some point in the future. And one of the reasons why guilt keeps on popping up, even in Kira Knightley, who describes herself as an atheist, is that a part of our mind is designed to feel guilty. Maybe it's a God thing in there. Part of our mind is designed to feel guilty because it's all part of this sort of, you know, we're meant to look for a, a, a saviour. But it's not primarily a spiritual kind of thing. It's, it's a sort of predisposition in the human brain to, to feel guilty. And where does that come from? And on, on the next slide, different psychological schools have got different ideas. So, so what the um, psychoanalysts would say is this is about the repression of the id. Now, the id is the sort of instant gratification bit of our psyche. It's the bit that's into sort of sex and appetite and sports and shoes and things like that. It's, it's the bit that is sort of, <laughs> give me... Notice I said sports and shoes. Okay, so it's, it's the bit that wants stuff. And it's particularly, Freud would have said, about sex, if that makes sense. And there's something slightly dirty about that, isn't there? Are you allowed to say sex at a Christian conference? That was the sex. Um, but <laughs> Sex, there we are. Enough. It's my id. I can't stop it. But when we repress it, now we should repress it because what happens is then as, as the child grows, you resolve the Oedipal complex, form the secret ego, we could become healthy adults, etc., etc. But guilt 
if the repression is not, if it's just repression, it's not development, it's not a negotiation. If it's just repression because something happens during that time because development is disrupted, we feel guilty. A lot of people who've had early childhood traumas will feel chronically guilty for no particular reason other than it's like a boiling pot of water and the lid is shoved on it and the lid is bubbling away underneath because it's never fully been integrated in, into our brain. So that's the psychoanalytical theory. Apologies if you're a psychoanalytical therapist and I have just written all over that. My, my apologies. That's my very basic understanding of it. The behavioral therapists would say guilt works. Guilt's a wonderful short-term motivator, isn't it? Isn't it the most wonderful thing to sort of point your finger at someone and say, that was, I mean, Walt was talking about guilt-based parenting earlier, wasn't he? That, that, that made me, that put me in a really difficult position. You feel guilty. It's a short-term motivating factor to change. So guilt works. I would suggest not very well in the long term, but in the, in the short term it works. Cognitive therapy tells us that um, our brain is designed to look at different options and sometimes shortcuts by making assumptions. So we assume, for example, um, you know, if, you, if you're depressed, you tend to assume, well, I haven't got any friends, or it's all going to go wrong, or, or, or something jumps into our brain. Our, our brains make shortcuts. And one of the things of cognitive therapy is to try and sit that down piece it all apart, look at the evidence for and against and say, what's going on? But our brain, certainly for most people, I was joking about the psychopaths earlier, but there was a, a semi-bit of truth in that. Most of us tend to sort of scan for, have we done something wrong here? Have we offended someone? Because we want to be nice people. We want to be social people. So guilty thoughts will come into our mind because we're trying to be nice. And that's very, very simple. And then, of course, if you are actually clinically depressed, if you are really struggling with your mood, your brain gives off mood-related thoughts like that. I feel bad. I probably did something bad. I just can't remember it at the moment. And it, it's just stuck in that sort of cycle you get with severe depression. Actually, I think it goes back further than that, doesn't it? I've talked entirely there about stuff that's happened from the age of two, if that makes sense. But let's go back a little bit further. Let's go back to the womb, to the genes, to the gene-environment interactions. Now, on the next slide, there's two of my favourite films. Okay, so on the left, you've got um, Hannibal Lecter. Okay, he, I mean, that's my favourite person. I said my favourite film. So, so Hannibal Lecter there, you know, famously so the, the, the archetypal psychopath, you know, I'm having an old friend for dinner with some Chianti. And, you know, there is that, I mean, he is the cannibal, Hannibal the cannibal, isn't he? He's an extremely nasty person, but he doesn't feel guilt at all. Psychopaths, by definition, don't feel remorse, don't learn from mistakes, don't take into account the feelings of other people. So he's at one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got Councillor Deanna Troy, who is the beauty of the Starship Enterprise. When I was growing up, a good friend of mine had a six-foot cardboard cutout of her in his room. <laughs> I'm not mentioning his name, Steve. So... <laughs> But she is rather gorgeous, and, but she's also completely erotic, isn't she? She she's, thinks she should prevent every single mishap from happening to the Starship Enterprise. Spock doesn't think, Kirk saves the day, Deanna Troy worries about everything. As a result, she's probably quite a good counsellor, actually, because she's an empath. She feels things, doesn't she? So she's the other end of the spectrum. She tends to feel guilty about absolutely everything. And there's this thing called, on the next slide, this thing called the guilt and shame proneness scale. There is a spectrum of the ease with which we feel guilty. This is research done at Carnegie Mellon University. Some people just tend to feel guilty, and all the evidence is that this is just something that's genetic. It's almost part of your personality, in the same way that some people are introverts, some people are extroverts. Some people just feel guilty. 
And if you score very highly on guilt and shame proneness and have done for the whole life, chances are it's part of your personality. It's sausage to do with your spiritual state. It's just the way you're built. And probably you're among the more lovely group of people. You're probably very good at, at listening. You're probably very good at spotting other people's needs and emotions. Perhaps you don't take enough care of your own. Yeah? But there is this spectrum. They found that um, women are more prone to guilt than, than men. That's one of the things we were discussing earlier. Older adults are more prone to guilt than, than younger ad uh, um, adults. So there is this spectrum. And there's something in here about just feeling guilty. So I suppose my point, all of this sort of combines into this wonderful sort of, if it feels bad, it must be bad on the next slide. And some of it is genetic, some of it is early environment and how our ids are formed and all that kind of stuff. And some of it is our development, some of which perhaps is an episode of depression. All of it combines into this sort of global statement, if it feels bad, it must be bad. This is um, Simba from The Lion King. Yeah, great show, going around the country. I saw it in Edinburgh for Christmas and took the boys and fantastic stage. If you ever get a chance, go and see it on stage. But if you've seen the cartoon, this is Simba. He's, he's been forced away from the pride by his uncle Scar. He's manipulated to believe that his foolishness directly led to his father's death. He then makes a logical leap. I killed Mufasa. I killed my father. And he runs away and leaves the pride lands. He feels so bad that something must have happened. I've seen people come into my clinic saying, I've ruined everything, I've destroyed my marriage, etc., etc., etc. It's not true. It, it, it's just the way they are thinking because they've got this sort of feelings equals facts thing going on. So how do we change? How do we, how do we improve false guilt? How do we get help? That really was just the diagnosis. One, th one thing I hate is um, sermons that give you all the diagnosis and none of the prescription, okay? So... Too much of that, haven't you? You know, I mean, the diagnosis is easy, but you can, I've never yet had to tell somebody with low self-esteem they have low self-esteem. I've never had to do that. They know. Okay. <laughs> they just, I mean, and likewise, if you struggle with guilt, you know you struggle with guilt. Okay. I hope this is perhaps an explanation of why you struggle with guilt and where it comes from. It's helpful to see true and false guilt, but the diagnosis is not the important thing. The prescription is, is what can we do about it? Now, likewise... The last thing I'm going to do is give you a psychotherapy lesson at about half past three on a Saturday afternoon. Okay, so some of this I am going to say, this is what the bulk of the book is about. And one of the reasons I've written the book is to put down about 100 pages of the stages to get better. There are techniques, there are tools. It requires work. It probably takes about a year to read the book properly. Okay, you can read it quickly, but there are exercises to do. You need to come back, you need to do a chapter, work at it. Do a chapter, do a work at it. But there are things that work, and I'm going to go through them fairly quickly now. The first is just to, I mean, Jonathan was talking about it with worry as well. It's just labeling it. That's, a, that's my worry talking. That's a false guilt. You know, you probably have false guilt themes. You probably tend to feel guilty about the typical things. Write them down. Stick them on the back of the toilet door. Put them on the inside of the kitchen cupboards. Put them in your wallet. Put them in your handbag. Stick them behind the rearview mirror in your car. Remember and know your guilt themes. So the next time the little voice goes, blah, 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 you know it's guilt, preferably before you've spent the entire afternoon feeling guilty. The second thing is about, for some of these things, they'll need a little bit more working through. Will we'll calls it making new appraisals. It's about sort of getting that thought and having a little bit of a, a couple of paragraphs 
that go with that thought as to perhaps why you tend to think that often, why maybe you thought it was true once and now some evidence against it. So you're, you're reappraising that thought and that requires a bit of work and again maybe it is a, a fuller postcard for your, your, your recurrent guilty thoughts that you can keep in prominent places. For some things you're probably going to have to actually physically unlearn stuff and you don't unlearn stuff coming to a day like this. If you struggle with guilt for 20 years, your brain has been learning that guilt is of some kind of value. Maybe you thought it had spiritual value because it led to Jesus. It doesn't. That's true guilt. But false guilt still, it's like the rocking chair, isn't it? It feels like you do it. At least you're feeling guilty about it. So if you have done something wrong, you've done a bit of your sort of um, pilgrimage, if that makes sense, haven't you? You know, you've, you've, you've paid your price to a certain extent. So we're going to have to learn new ways. Now, I don't know if any of you have come across behavioural experiments. Um, I'll just illustrate it with a little story, okay? Man gets on a train at Paddington, just from here, sets out on, I don't know, where, where do trains to Paddington go from? Slough, okay? Not very far to Slough. You've got to, be, got to get up beyond the urban jungle, because you'll see with the story. Let's go beyond Slough. Let's keep going towards Cardiff or Birmingham or something like that. And you're out in the countryside, and anyway, there's this man who's sharing the carriage with you. And every so often, the man tears up bits of paper, and you, you can't do this on modern trains, but you did when this story was written. Uh, every so, he tears up bits of paper, and every so often, he throws the bits of paper out of the window. Just little shreds, throws them out. Doesn't do anything. Ten minutes later, tears up another bit of paper, throws it out of the window. Ten minutes later, another bit of paper, throws it out the window. And you, you manage it until about Slough and a bit beyond and all that sort of thing. Eventually, you say, what on earth are you doing? What, you know, what on earth are you doing? And the man says, mm, glad you asked. I'm keeping elephants off the track. And you say, but there aren't any elephants on the track. The man says, exactly. <laughs> now, if you were on the outskirts of Mumbai, maybe there would be, but not in Slough. Okay, you, you know, Windsor Safari Park is now Legoland. Okay. Not in Slough, but the man has always thrown bits of paper out the window and never not, and the train has never hit an elephant. Therefore, he's right, isn't he? You've always said sorry, and everyone's gone, oh, that's okay, that's absolutely fine. Thank you so much for saying sorry. Give me some positive reinforcement. And um, they've always, what a nice person, Jane is. She always says sorry for everything. You know, they, 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 they like you. But you've never not said sorry. So at some point... You need to stop saying sorry and see if the sky falls on your head. There was a, a, a teacher I, I met once, and you know, every day at the end of the school day, she would go around the classrooms tidying up all the other classrooms in, in, in the primary school classroom block because they were all a bit messy. I mean, never worked with children and animals, yeah? So, so the classroom messy. She'd always go around and, 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 and tidy it up and say, why did it? I, was like, I, I felt I'm really not a very good teacher. I'm just in my first year, and you know, I'm really not doing a very good job, and I thought you know, I'm going to maybe sort of tidy up the classrooms to try and sort of atone for that in some way. So do you know what she had to do? She had to stop tidying up the classroom. She had to go home and stop it at some point and see if people treated her differently when she came in the next day. Now, we did it in stages. She stopped tidying the classrooms one at a time. So about 10 classrooms. First day, I only tidied nine. And what a surprise. No one noticed. And everyone said, oh, Jackie, how are you? You know, and she did feel more guilty for a short period of time. But over time, she thought, hey, suck it to you, guilt. I'm doing the next six classrooms now, you know. And she fairly quickly worked her way down the classrooms. And she felt so much better 
because she'd done a behavioural experiment, she'd found out the world didn't fall on her head and it gave her confidence to tackle the other things as well. So you're probably going to need to unlearn it and unlearning involves doing something differently. Um, in the Ford factory that makes cars, a story is told about cars going around the manufacturing conveyor belt and they were coming out with all of the number plates on upside down. Perfectly good cars otherwise, number plates on upside down. And of course the thing is the cars are not going to come on with the, come out with the number plates on the right way up until someone changes something, until the machine starts doing something differently. So they had to get that machine, change something, and then the cars came out the right way. So we need to unlearn things. So these are sort of, there's a ladder on here. These are sort of stages and steps. The odd thought, you can brush some of them away, I'd suggest. 50% are guilty thoughts, say, that's false guilt, I'm not talking to you now, I'm in a hurry. Okay, you can have your guilt box, or your guilt day if you want to. Your recurrent thoughts, you're going to have to make these appraisals and write them down. Your, your persistent traps, the thing you're really struggling with, you're going to have to unlearn in some way. And in the book, there are exercises that will take you through all of this. The resistant niggle, it's about being kind to yourself. It's about being compassionate to yourself. Some guilty thoughts are not going to go away, despite all the therapy, despite everything else, despite all the worship in the world, particularly if you're going to be a high guilt and shame proneness person, particularly if you're going to be someone who tends to feel guilty. More or less whatever's going on, some of it may lost in your childhood and you know, do you know what? Don't get the skeletons out of the cupboards, you know. The, 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 there's these resistant niggles. Challenge it where you can, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself where you can't. So those are our sort of four sort of steps for, for false guilt. And I'm just going to say a little bit more about kindness and so on before we finish, because I think it actually ties back in with the gospel. We've made this, and perhaps Paul Tournier was right, actually, because um, this is a very good book. Um, guilt and Grace, it's called. Um, the gospel, of course, is not quite so simple as that, is it? We've said sort of, you know, the gospel for true guilt and the stepwise techniques for false guilt. It's not quite as simple as that, because, of course, the gospel is not the four square gospel. The gospel is not two ways to live. The gospel is not once saved, always saved. It can't be boiled down to a formula like that. So, so on the next slide, um, Paul, Paul Tillich, who was a, a postmodern philosopher and, and a pastor, wrote a book called The Courage to Be. Now, he was writing from a Christian perspective, and he said, the courage to be is the courage to accept oneself in spite of being unacceptable. Now, I'm not talking about a... Um, prayed the prayer type of I'm a sinner now I'm saved I'm talking about actually knowing that we are unacceptable Will was saying at the beginning wasn't he we're all mental we are all unacceptable we have all offended God we are all broken people Ali was Ari was saying that mentalness brokenness is not male or female is it we are all broken we are all fundamentally unacceptable and in that state in that state God accepts us that's the miracle of the gospel not that we prayed a prayer and he welcomed us home and everyone was happy. It's that we were unacceptable. Brendan Manning puts it another way on the next slide. He said, and of course, Brendan Manning died last year. And I, I love, isn't it interesting that, I mean, some of you have probably done this already because you've already read these books earlier. But a lot of the, the people who are passionate leaders in, in the church, they're, they're writing books. But often later in life, they come to Brendan Manning. Often later in life, they come to Henry Nouwen. Yeah? 
it's because they perhaps realize the gospel is not quite so simple as the particular sort of hammer they were banging. And I, I think we need to be wide in our stable. So Brendan Manning died last year, but he said this. He said, to live by grace is to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what grace means. Martin Luther used to say, grace teaches, teaches me. We learn, and I was saying earlier about unlearning through behavioral experiments. And unless we understand that God loves our dark side and our light side, and of course the irony, of course, is we know, I hope, he forgives our dark side. Do we know he forgives our goodness as well? Do we know that Jesus loved the older brother? Do we know that God forgives our over-excellence, our over-achieving? That's what Will was talking about first thing this morning. Our light side and our dark side. But what he's saying here is, in admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am. I think almost, when we wrestle with false guilt and true guilt, it almost proves God. It almost, because you can't do this without God. If you, if you haven't got God, you haven't got an answer to true guilt. And do you know what? If you stole the apple, you should feel guilty. And without God, you don't have an answer to that. But with false guilt... We do have some answers to that, but ultimately it boils down to compassion and perhaps these, these two streams that separated come together again as, as actually we realize it, it, it's all about relationship. John Stott was asked once, how do you define Christianity? And he didn't come, say, cross or anything, or Jesus. He said, relationship. It all boils down to relationship, the relationship we have with God that was broken, that was restored, how much God loves us. You know, Brendan Manning, one beggar, telling another beggar where to find bread. I'm not sure if that was Brendan, but he certainly re-quoted it. It's that wonderful sort of gracious, compassionate kind of gospel. So, if we can understand how much God loves us, if we can understand the richness of the forgiveness for true guilt, if we can understand some of these techniques to put false guilt to one side and to try to be kind to ourselves, what does it mean? What does it mean on the next slide? Just, just to walk this out. What does it mean? Can you do it? Can you read the guilt book? Can you come to a talk on this and begin to live a guilt-free life? What does it look like to live a guilt-free life? Now, obviously, guilt-free life is, is a fantasy. I appreciate that. I will still feel guilty, and I will still sin until I go to heaven. But the Bible says we are holy, not sinners, isn't it? You know, and sometimes we think of ourselves with our sinner hat on, not with our holy hat on. What does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean to live free from guilt? Now, what I don't mean is to live free from guilt in a blasé kind of way. Because if there are some people who go around and say, I feel so forgiven, so free, I've never felt guilty since Jesus loved me. I would suspect perhaps they're not scoring very high on guilt and shame proneness. Okay, there's, there's some people will still continue to feel guilty. There's a story told, I do some stories because it's late in the day. George Whitfield, the old... Um, Anglican pastor who was part of the English, English awakening in, in the 1700s told of a story where he sat down for dinner one evening and he'd been preaching all day and he had went around someone's house for dinner and there were a number of people around this and, and one of the people was the local ma magistrate or something like this and he said Mr Whitfield or words to that effect they always spoke like that in those historical dramas didn't they Mr Whitfield I have discovered the secret possibly from Ireland and but he so, Mr. Whitfield, I've discovered the secret. I've discovered the secret of killing the old man. And there's this thing in the New Testament, isn't there? The new man versus the old man. The, 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 the sinful self and the, 
the resurrected, the, the sanctified self. And of course, depending on how you read the Old Testament, you can go both ways. And some people seem to pretend that the old man is dead and the new man is all there is. And I, I live a slightly more broken life than that, I'm afraid. But, but Whitfield said, that's wonderful news. I'm delighted to hear that. How proud you must be. How proud you must be to have finally stopped sinning this side of heaven. That's absolutely wonderful. And the man said, yes, it's great, isn't it? I've done it by lots of Bible study and constant application of uh, abstinence. And, you know, he was going on about this. Anyway, Whitfield listened to this for about five minutes. And he was going on about the new man and how he'd killed the old man. Whitfield at this point picked up a jug of water and threw it in the man's face. And the man stood up swore, threatened to take Whitfield outside and knock his block off. And Whitfield said to him, he said, ah, I see the old man was not dead at all, but was merely, was merely sleeping. I needed a glass of water to revive him. So I'm not talking here about spiritual superiority. I'm not talking about living free from guilt. We're not talking about sort of being holier than thou, because St. Paul never said that. If you think he said that in Romans, read again. If you think he's saying that in 1 Corinthians, read 2 Corinthians, okay? It's not about that, but what it is about saying is it's about maybe saying some things like guilt is, is not my friend. I don't need guilt anymore. It sometimes can be the blanket, albeit a prickly one. It can be the rocking chair that feels like we're doing something. To say, guilt is not my friend. I, I do not need this. There's something about a, a, a bill of rights to say, actually, as a Christian... I don't need to listen to Satan anymore. I don't need to feel guilty. I am God's son. I am forgiven, etc., etc. And we, we try to put a bill of rights in there, which we hope is helpful. And saying, I'm not an imposter. What, what, what does Satan say? He's the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies. Those things are not true. Okay? When, when Satan says those things, they're not true. He is the accuser of the brethren. However... However, there is an acid test, isn't there? I was talking before about overcomers. Overcomers are people who limp, limp through to the end, whose faith lasts. Those are the marks of faith in the New Testament, aren't they? Not, not so much a, con, uh, a, a confessing faith, but the, the person who is persecuted. Persecution is a mark of true faith, isn't it? Hmm. Not sure that's in my gospel tract. Um, making it to the end is a mark of true faith in the Old Testament. Okay. Confessing Jesus Christ as Lord is a mark of true faith. But this, this making it to the end, this acid test, and I'm going to come back to a picture I put up at the beginning, the, the um, John Martin picture. What does it mean to come in to this haven of peace? John Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor and writer, he said, great thoughts of sin will drive you alone to despair, but great thoughts of Christ will pilot you into the haven of peace. And he says that in morning and evening from the 27th of March, this idea perhaps of prevailing winds. We're trying to sail across the Atlantic, let's say, and we long to land in the promised land somewhere, but the wind beats this way, and the wind keeps coming this way, and our personality blows us this way with guilt. We do do stuff wrong, so there is some true guilt as well. Our moods make us feel guilty but what we want to try and do is see if we can sort of turn our waves uh, our sails in such a way tack sideways across it um, find enough wind from the holy spirit to give us a blow from time to time again this is navigating rocky seas like i was saying at the start of the conference and can we make it upstream can we make it against the wind and the waves can we make it together because the anchor 
holds beyond the veil. We know that, don't we? But there's quite a bit of hauling in. Okay? You've got a long chain, okay? You've got a long chain. And Satan's got a long chain the other way sometimes. So, so we need to be slowly, steadily working with guilt. We've called it a path to grace and freedom. Not, you're here already, roll over, never have another guilty thought. Because, hey, sorry, it's not that kind of book. All right. It's, it's a journey that we're on. And perhaps you'll, you'll join with me in, in thinking about this, this haven of peace, which is our destination, where one day we will be, but we're not there yet. And hopefully you found it helpful to have some tools and techniques along the way. So thank you so much.